1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared. So how are you doing with that? How are you doing with both parts? With being ready to explain the hope that's in you? And also with doing it in a winsome and gracious and gentle and respectful way that brings glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I can find it intimidating to take advantage of those opportunities to share my faith and give an answer sometimes in some context. It it makes me think of an old fable, actually. There was once a community of mice who were having a real issue with the resident cat. It seemed like every time the mice wanted to do something, you know, scurry around and visit the pantry, pick up some crumbs off the ground, go on living, uh, the cat just was getting in their way. And so finally, the mice decided they're going to hold a general assembly. And the topic for discussion was what is to be done about the present feline menace which we all face. Many spoke, they had lots of discussion, but no one really came up with an idea that was going to fix the problem until finally one bold young mouse stood up, cleared his throat, and he said, I think I have a solution. It seems to me, and to many others who are involved in this problem, that the real source of danger comes from how stealthy that cat is. It gets us before we even know what's coming. We can never hear it coming. So here's what I propose. We get ourselves a bell and a piece of ribbon, and we tie a bell around that cat's neck. Then he won't be able to sneak up on us, and we'll be safe. Well, you've never seen so many little mouse paws go up to make a motion, and second a motion, and pass a motion. Everyone thought that was a great idea. Everyone was in favor. Until an old mouse who had been silent in the back of the room spoke up. He said, well, that's a good idea. There's only one thing left to decide. Which one of you ties the bell around the cat's neck? And one by one, all those little paws went down. And finally, someone meekly spoke up and suggested that the motion to bell the cat be tabled until the next meeting. There never was another meeting. And the point of the story is this. Sometimes you have a solution to your problem, but it just really isn't worth anything unless there's someone willing to do it. And sadly, it can go the same way with witnessing in the church. Everyone agrees that sharing our faith and reaching out in the community is a great idea. Everyone also agrees that the people sitting in the row in front of them and behind them should be the ones to go do it. It's an intimidating thing. We all know it's a good thing to do, but we need to go out and do it. My hope and prayer for our time this morning is that we can come away with a renewed sense of just how right and natural it should be for us to share the story of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That we would be reminded of the content of God's great story of redemption, and also that we would be reaffirmed in the way we perceive our own stories, how they should be shaped by our identity as a people who have been redeemed out of trouble by a mighty and living God. When you have a chance to tell your story, to either a stranger or a fellow believer, what kind of story do you tell? We're going to get to our passage in just a minute, and you can turn there if you want. It's going to be the 107th Psalm. Psalm 107, it'll be about page 506 if you're using the black Bibles in the chairs, or right in the middle of the Bible, um, if not. But before we begin expositing the text, I want to put one more thing in the back of your brain, some simple questions that I would encourage you to do two things with this week. I put the questions on the back of your sermon notes so that you would have them. And those questions are designed 
to begin a conversation with another person in which you will potentially explain to them how you think the world works, and you can hear their explanation too and understand their explanation. And the, the questions are really simple. It's just, where did everything come from? Who are you and what were you made for? What went wrong? As in, why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? And what hope is there? What hope is there for a solution to where we find ourselves right now? Those, the, the two things I would like you to do with those questions this week is first just ask them to someone. Anyone. Ask those questions. And after you ask them, listen. Really listen to their answers. And then second, share your answers with them. That's going to involve doing some work to actually making sure you know what your answers are to those questions. But doing that establishes a few things. It gets you listening. I challenge you to find a single example of evangelizing in the New Testament where the person who is witnessing does not have a pretty firm grasp of what the person they're witnessing to believes. Just take Jesus as your example. He always listened so that he was able to speak the truth right into someone's life. It also sets a fair playing field to compare the Christian worldview with any other worldview. You're not aggressively importing a religious message into a conversation. You're comparing, sharing what someone else believes with what you believe. And trust me on this, the way, the truth, and the life does not require home field advantage. He will do quite well uh, in any situation where you're able to share him. Doing this also does one more thing. It helps to clarify for you what you actually believe, to be able to articulate it and share it with someone else. With a chance to answer those four questions as Christians, we can start to share a story that is coherent from start to finish, from creation to redemption. And eventually, in the process of sharing, hopefully, how God created everything, how he created it to be good, how he created us, men and women, to have a special role of knowing him and trusting him and flourishing in a relationship with him, how sin entered into the world, and that was a turning away from those original good designs, how God revealed himself first to Israel, then in Jesus Christ, acting to redeem and restore. At some point in sharing that story, hopefully sooner, what you actually end up sharing will be your own story. If Jesus has really saved you, then that should have a profound effect on who you are. It should be the most natural thing in the world to tell people who you are and what God has done for you. I'm redeemed. I was lost. Now I'm found. I had been blind, but now I see. This is the difference that Jesus Christ has made in my life. And that's where Psalm 107 comes in this morning. I trust that as we open this up and read and receive and apply what we find there, we'll be reminded again of the way God's story of redemption has become our story if we're among those who have been redeemed. And not only that, but we'll be challenged will be challenged with what the proper response is to receiving God's grace. And that is to tell about all the wonders that he's done for us. So no more delay. I've set the table three times over. Um, it's a long psalm, but as Pastor Dan often says, uh, the time that we devote to reading it now will be the only perfect part of this sermon. So let's make sure we read it through all the way with expectant reverence. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. 
Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. And tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert. Springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they're diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. With a lengthy passage of ancient Hebrew poetry like this before us, we are going to require a plan before we proceed. We don't have time to plumb the depths verse by verse. The first thing we're going to do is spend some time acknowledging how this passage of Scripture came to us through the nation of Israel. That's who it was written to and entrusted to. 
And this particular psalm has a structure that is thankfully not too difficult to see in the English. Verses 1 to 3 are an introduction. They tell us who it's been written to and why it's been written. For the redeemed of the Lord, to think about the way God has worked in their lives, past and present, to rescue them out of trouble. And then the real burden of the psalm is this, that the people who have been redeemed would respond naturally and rightly by giving thanks to God. To paraphrase what's been said by others, if we can rank a duty by how important it is or how reluctant human hearts are to do that duty by how often the scriptures command us to do it, then giving thanks and praise to God for what he has done must sit at just about the top of that list. We're told over and over again, give thanks to the Lord. Give him praise. So the burden, the proper response to this psalm is for those who have been redeemed to respond with thanksgiving. What comes after the introduction, beginning in verse 4, and hopefully it's easy to see in your, in your Bible uh, with paragraphs and spacing, but we have four stanzas of about the same size here. If your Bible doesn't break them up visually, it might be a good idea to make little marks at verses 4 and 10 and 17 and 23 because that's where the, the stanzas start. I would just call them verses like we do with songs and hymns, but with the verse numbers, that would get confusing, so stanzas it is. And each of these four stanzas repeats a pattern, and each one gives us a different picture of what it looks like to be redeemed or rescued out of a different kind of trouble. Now, considering Israel's national history and the reference we have in verse 3 to those being gathered in from the lands, from the north and west and east and south and almost in that order, um, we, would, we would do good to remember that after the temple was destroyed in 587 BC and the 70 years spent in exile in Babylon, God fulfilled specific promises to Israel by bringing them back out of the land of Babylon and back to Israel. So this psalm draws on that history, and it draws on a lot more history, but it also generalizes the experience in a way that... Uh, that makes it not only a reference to what the Lord has done in the past, but also to the kinds of things he keeps doing. He he continually acts in redemption, and it looks forward to a greater act of redemption in the future. The, The very idea behind that word redemption goes all the way back to the beginning of Israel's existence as a nation when God redeemed his people out of Egypt, out of bondage. So references to captivity and wilderness and those pictures of reversal that we see in this psalm, they all take on a deeper meaning because they come out of a shared history between the Lord and his people. When we read a poem like this, we have to remember that on on one hand, these images aren't just pictures. They draw significance from the fact that God actually acted that way in the past. There's a history between him and his people. And on the other hand, we can appreciate that even though they're rooted In the past, they aren't intended to stay there. God does not change. He's acted that way in the past, and we can count on him to keep acting that way in the future. And this is crucially important when we take passages written to Israel and apply them to Christ, and then through Christ to to his new covenant people, to us. We have to remember that Israel saw not only their past in this picture of redemption, but also their hope for the future. What I really want us to do today is go back through those four redemption stories between verses 4 and 32, and find our place in them. The part of the psalm we won't really be able to do justice to this morning comes at the end, from verses 33 to 43. After the four stanzas, there's a short little, essentially a little wisdom poem that follows up those stories. 
It, uh, it, it reflects on the fact that God is sovereign in all acts of reversal, in good times and in bad, in humbling great powers and in exalting the lowly. And at the very end of the psalm, in verse 43, we get a second reason that this is written to God's people. The first reason, back in verse 2, that the redeemed of the Lord should give him thanks. And the second reason, whoever is wise, let him consider and attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The New Living Translation has a really interesting wording choice for verse 43. It reads, those who are wise will take all this to heart. They will see in our history the faithful love of the Lord. They will see in our history the faithful love of the Lord. And that's, that's admittedly an interpretation rolled in with the translation. But it's not a bad one. Because that Hebrew word in verse 43 for steadfast love, it's a covenant word. It's a relationship word. It's, it doesn't have any meaning if it gets removed from the context of the relationship that God has with his people. And the same thing goes for Lord, block caps that you see there, L-O-R-D. Every time we see that, that word in our Bible, that's, that's not a, a title, like the Lord of the castle, the way we might think about, and it's not a word like, like our English word God, which represents a concept or an idea. The Lord is the English translation of a name, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, the name of the Lord that God revealed to Moses when he was about to rescue his people out of slavery and make a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. So every time you see that, that speaks about the covenant and the relationship. It talks about the God who has revealed himself in his relationship with his people. So verse 43, if you're wise, you'll pay attention to the way God works and you will see in the stories of those who are redeemed by him, you'll see God's hand behind all those remarkable reversals of fate. And in particular, you'll look at Israel's history and be able to see a relationship between God and his people. And it'll be profitable to you because it will help you in your life and in the church and in the lives around you to see the active hand of God. In Matthew 13, 51, Jesus said, Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The reason it's good to study the scriptures and learn from Israel's history is not to have this impressive bank of knowledge that can just wow people and win Bible trivia competitions. It's to learn and to recognize the way God works. And then to see him reconciling the the world to himself in Christ. And it's to see that the God who acts to redeem his people has acted that way in the past... He's done it once and for all, and most gloriously in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he continues to redeem and restore and reconcile in the world all around us today. So are you ready to look into some redemption stories? There's four stanzas, four stories. Stanza one begins in verse four, goes from verse four to verse nine. I'm going to refer to them in in order in the passage as the wanderer's story, the rebel's story, the fool's story, and the know-it-all's story. That fourth one's going to require a bit of explanation when we get there. But But the wanderer's story from verse 4 to 9. It might not be true for all of you the way it's true for me, but I find more than a little bit of myself in all four of these stories. 
There are, there are other people that I know who really stand out to me as being a representative of one of these four in a really strong particular way. I know I've met a few wanderers in my day. People who spent their whole lives searching for something that they needed, and sometimes it took them a long time. But the setting for this story is the desert, verse 4. The desert is a place we hear referenced many times in Scripture, and there are two main themes associated with the desert in the Old Testament. The first is a place of testing and preparing, the place where you're on pilgrimage. You haven't yet arrived at home. And the second is an obvious one. It's the one that seems to be most relevant here in the story. The desert is very simply not a place that supports life. J.C. Philpott points out the spiritual dimensions of the desert as a a type and figure of what this present world is to the Lord's people. There is nothing that grows in it fit for nourishment. So spiritually speaking, just like a physical desert, the desert of this world does not have what we need to live. Going back to those worldview questions that I gave you at at the start of the, on the back of your sheet there, mankind was made by God to live in a garden with water and food, but we've been exiled from Eden, and we find ourselves in a desert place instead. If sin was a turning away from God, and God is the source of life, then it's a desperate situation we find ourselves in. The thing that's missing, the thing that we need, we cannot find in this world. Because the thing that we need is God himself. Augustine famously said, our souls find no rest until they find their rest in you. And that really is the turning point of this story in verse 6. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. They cried to the Lord. It was only in crying out to him for rescue that they were saved. And just look at the results of that salvation. Think about all the things that were mentioned as their problems. They, were, they had no way. They had no city. They were hungry and thirsty and their souls were tired. Then look at verses 7, 8, and 9 and you'll find that salvation is complete. All of those things are given to them. The message here is that without God's redeeming grace, there is nothing to be found in this world that will give us life. But with God, there's an abundance of every good thing. This first story and the fourth story have something in common. They both deal with rescue out of trouble that comes as a result of human limitations. The middle two stories have a slightly different emphasis. The rebel and the fool, we both see rescue there pictured as rescue out of trouble that comes as a direct result of human sinfulness. So verses 10 to 16, the story of the rebel. I'm going to read it just to get it back in our minds. Uh, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. So here is a powerful, familiar picture to us of what sin does to those it holds. Chains, right? Imprisonment. 
And not just any imprisonment, but if you look in how it's described in verse 10, this is a place of darkness and death from which there is no escape. This is because we learn in verse 11 that their offenses are not against kings or rulers or man-made laws. They have rebelled against God's law. And they're not falsely accused. They're not innocent prisoners hoping to be released. They're guilty. And they know they're guilty. Their guilt, their guilty chains, they hang heavy upon them. And they know that their future is death and darkness. That's what they have to look forward to. And then look at verse 12. In this situation, the Lord acts in mercy, believe it or not. When it says, he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Why is it an act of mercy that God increases the weight of their guilt and pushes them down to the point where they realize there is no help anywhere in this world? Because it's only in that place of complete humility, when there is no other hope of help, that they would think to cry out to the Lord whose laws they had broken for mercy. The beautiful truth here is that God delivers even those who cry out to him when their distress is, their, is his discipline on them. When they cry out to him, the deliverance is striking. Just as hopeless as their situation was before, it reverses completely. There's no more darkness. There's no more death. The very chains that held them burst apart. Verse 16, doors of bronze. Imagine, picture a door made of bronze, shattered, bars of iron, cut like butter. Impossible, we should whisper. Impossible. How can God's righteousness and justice stand for that? They were guilty. And the only acceptable answer is found in the cross, where the sinless Son of God suffered and died to pay in full the debt owed by sinners. You might picture Jesus himself walking into the prison, pointing at the guilty man in chains, motioning for him to be set free. And the warden, who's bound by justice not to release any until their endless debt is paid in full, he might be about to object when Jesus holds up his hands to show the marks left by the nails, points at his feet, indicates the wound in his side, and the guilty man goes free because his sins can hold him no longer. He's been redeemed. The story of the fools in verses 17 to 22 bears a strong resemblance to the story of the rebel that we just looked at. I'll quote from, from someone that I only know by last name. I found him in a footnote named Dick Dixon. He says, Sin blindeth sinners and bereaveth them of the right use of their reason and maketh them choose trifles with the loss of what should be most precious. A modern paraphrase would be, sin makes you stupid, and it deceives you into neglecting what's best in order to chase after something that doesn't last and in the end will only kill you. The end result is that fools have chosen their own affliction. They've chosen the things that will harm them, and in the end, their path is pictured for us as fatal sickness. With death approaching, those things that once pleased them in life lose all appeal. Even the pleasure that they once chased and got out of sin has been taken away from them. 
And incredibly, miraculously, some of the people in that situation do turn and cry out to the Lord. And incredibly, amazingly, in Willem van Gemmeren's terse way of stating it, what the people deserved, they did not get. What the people deserved, they did not get. Amen. Verse 20. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. The agent of salvation to these fools is the very word of God that they had mocked before in their iniquities. How marvelous. Salvation comes from hearing the word of God spoken into an otherwise hopeless situation. Think of Isaiah 55.11. My word will not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. Skip ahead to John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, the word of God, took on flesh and became that which redeems his people out of trouble. If you ever wonder why we preach the word of God here and nothing else, it's because it's only when we hear God's word from outside of us and we hear it and it produces in us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance from sin, that's the only time when wanderers find their way home. It's the only time when the guilty go free. It's the only time when fools who are as good as dead men find healing and life. Here's James Montgomery Boyce. When God speaks his word from the mouth of the preacher to our hearts, we experience a spiritual resurrection, just as Lazarus did when Jesus called him from the tomb. The word of God is living and active and powerful today, and there is no amount of human wisdom or work or cleverness or ingenuity or creativity that can save a soul. It's only the word of God. And that brings us to our fourth story, Uh, The story of the sailors on the sea, which I've labeled for you the the know-it-alls story. At this point, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and I'm going to begin the task of making some big-picture observations and connections and applications from the pattern that we observe in these stories. I'm going to roll the exposition of the fourth stanza right into these applications uh, because it's both a good example of the pattern that we've seen every time and also because there's there's one little unique aspect in this fourth story that helps to highlight an important point we're about to come to. So as we look at these four collected redemption stories, and we remember that this entire psalm is directed towards the redeemed of the Lord, let's ask some questions about who are the redeemed of the Lord. Well, first, the redeemed are diverse. There is not only one redemption story. There are a multitude of redemption stories that have all kinds of sin and trouble. This means that anyone has the potential to be redeemed. There's no kind of trouble in this world and there's no depth of sinful depravity that can keep God's grace from saving a soul. Sometimes we make terrible judges about who is and who is not a suitable candidate for redemption. And we would probably do well to remember that one of the things that's common across all four stories here is a total lack of hope before God intervenes. You don't know, and I don't know, who is currently living the first half of a redemption story. God knows. If you want to find out, apply the word of God. Apply the gospel. 
This also means that your story doesn't have to look like his story or her story or anyone else's story. The longtime prodigal who has a lifetime of scars does not necessarily have more to give thanks for than someone who was raised in a Christian home and called on Christ at a young age. Both of those people have a story that's worth listening to and that's worth telling because both of them have been spectacularly rescued. There's no limits to the variety of ways that God has redeemed his people, but there is a certain pattern. And there is one thing that all of the redeemed have in common. So the second thing we observe about the redeemed is that the redeemed have a redeemer. The redeemed have a redeemer. And what I mean by that is not that the redeemed know about a redeemer, or they like story redemption, stories about redemption, or they talk about a redeemer a lot. But the one factor that's present in every one of these stories is that these people came to a point where they cried out to be saved. Just take a look at the hinge verse in all four stories. Verses 6 and 13 and 19 and 28. I'll read them all for you at exactly the same time. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he rescued them from their distress. Wasn't that a neat trick? I just read four different verses simultaneously. I guess it did help that in all four stories, the turning point was exactly the same. That verse is repeated in all four stories. With that in mind, let's, let's read over the fourth story and, and take a look at the, the know-it-all story, these sailors on the ships. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lift up, lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them from their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. The reason that I've labeled this fourth story the know-it-all story is because I think that there is something different about the situation that these sailors find themselves in compared to the first three stories. Without help in the desert, the wanderer was a dead man and he knew it. Without pardon, the prisoners in jail were hopeless and they knew it. Without healing, the fools were goners And they knew it. But in verse 23, the men on the boats had no idea that they would have trouble getting to their destination. They were sailors, merchants. This was what they did. Unique to all four stories is the fact that this fourth group might reasonably expect to get where they're going using their own skills and resources. And we read those ominous words. They were doing business on the great waters. They thought they knew but they had no idea what they were doing out there. They had no idea what they were in store for. My friends, if you have never cried out to the Lord to save you, then your story is not a redemption story. Redemption stories don't begin with someone setting out to accomplish something and then doing it of their own power and then throwing a party when they've completed their task. 
That's a success story. It's not a redemption story. If you want to be among the ones that the psalmist is speaking to when he says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, then you need to be rescued out of trouble. We love to sing Amazing Grace, don't we? It's an absolute classic. I used to have a friend who wore a t-shirt, and on the t-shirt it said, I am the wretch that the song is referring to. In order to be one of the redeemed, you have to be rescued from something. You can't really sing about how great it is to be found if you never realized you were lost. You can't praise God for relieving your worst fears if you've never been afraid. And if you're like those sailors and merchants doing business on the great waters, but doing business with your own insight, your own plans, your own knowledge, your own church clothes, your own church attendance record, etc., etc., expecting to get to your destination as planned without actually needing to rely on the Lord for anything, then I've got serious news for you. There is a storm brewing, and it's on its way. And when it arrives, there will be no hope in anything except a desperate cry to the Lord. Save me. Daniel Pell was a preacher and a sailor in the 17th century. It's an interesting combo. And he wrote that if anyone would like to know at what time sailors take up the duty of prayer, let me say it is when death stares them in the face. In no time at all, these sailors that we read of in this fourth story, they go from being confident in their abilities and masters of their own domain to verse 26, having their courage melt away, and verse 27, being brought to their wits' end. The Hebrew says that all of their wisdom was literally swallowed up. It was useless. Their very best just wasn't enough. Do you know what it feels like to come to the end of yourself? To see your very limits and to know how truly insufficient they are in the face of your sin. And then to cry out, Lord, save us. If you do, then you're numbered among the redeemed. When the disciples, seasoned fishermen most of them, were on, the, were on that boat and they thought they were going to die in that storm. They went and found Jesus sleeping. And they woke him up and they said, Save us, Lord. We're going to die here. And immediately Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and they were calm. Take a peek at verse 25 in Psalm 107. Who raised up this storm to push those men to their limits? to put them in a place where they would have to call on him. The Lord did. Often we recall how Jesus demonstrated that he was the one who created the wind and the waves because they obeyed him and they were quiet. But who do you think the wind and the waves were obeying a few hours earlier when they were whipping up into that frenzy? William Romaine said this, True wisdom consists in observing just two things what we are in ourselves and what we are in Christ. In a deep sense of misery by sin, stirring us up to seek our remedy in the Redeemer. One final observation to make about the redeemed from the pattern that we see in these stories. The redeemed tell their story. They tell their story with thanksgiving. If you'd like, I could repeat my trick of reading four verses at once. 
Because there's another part that repeats in all four stories. Look at verses 8 and 15 and 21 and 31. In every single story, let, let the redeemed thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them, not the redeemed. I added a word there. This is what the redeemed of the Lord do. That's what they do. They tell their story. They tell what the Lord has done for them. So I asked you earlier again, and I'll ask again, how are you doing with that? Do you tell your story? And if you do, what kind of story do you tell? One of my favorite things to do when I get to know fellow believers for the first time is to swap stories, to hear from them how God has rescued and redeemed in their life. When you have a chance to share your story with others, is it a redemption story that you tell? And if so, does the story that you tell match the story that you live? I think it should probably be the case that no matter what your personality style is, or what your job is, or how you're made up, if someone is around you for long enough, and gets to know you well enough, it should be pretty much impossible to hide the fact that you are redeemed. Because we're called to return thanks with our life and with our lips. It becomes our identity. We were something before, but we're not now. We're redeemed. And one last thing, and I'll end on this, is who do you tell your story to? I would love it if our answer was everyone, but for most of us, that's not very realistic. But who can you start telling your story to? Look at verse 32. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people. Praise him in the assembly of the elders. You know what the best place is to start telling your redemption story? In church. Start telling other believers. Because if they've got a single wise bone in their redeemed body, they're going to be happy to hear your story. Remember verse 43? Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. To those who are wise, this story doesn't get old. There's no limit to how many times we can tell this story of what God has done, both for the world and for each one of us, without the wise who hear it getting something new from it. It washes over us and it soaks into us. It becomes more and more a part of us. And then it transforms us by faith. And it just becomes more natural to share this story, to see our story as a redemption story. We're going to be doing this in a very special way in our upcoming baptism service on March 19th. I cannot wait for that day because that is a chance for us to do a good job together as a congregation of telling and listening to what the Lord has done in the lives of those he has redeemed. And I want, you, I want to encourage you to do that more. When you're visiting with other members of the church, just ask them to tell you what God has done in their lives if you've never heard. And tell others Tell others what God does for you. Not just that wonderful story of the first time he rescued you when you turned to him, but also all the other ways he redeems you and rescues you and steps in when you need him. God is doing stuff all the time, and we should tell each other about it. That's the job of the redeemed. Give thanks to the Lord, because he's good, isn't he? Because his steadfast love never fades. He has redeemed his people from trouble. He's saved us from all of our sins. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let's pray.
Father, faithful one, our only Savior and Redeemer, thank you for the grace you've shown to us in redeeming us through your Son. I read somewhere this week that there's nothing so befitting of your children as when we publicly acknowledge that unmerited favor and that incredible goodness that you've freely shown to us. Father, we confess that sometimes the opposite can be true. Sometimes we forget to give you the thanks that you deserve. And there are even times that we begin to act as if the gifts and the blessings that we possess from you are ours by our own right. Forgive us of that, Lord. Forgive us of that and restore us back to a place where praise of your lips and thanks for what you have done are what naturally comes from us. Restore us to a place so that we can declare the gracious message of salvation that we have received through faith in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would work in us through your word, fill us with your spirit, and equip us, your servants, to be worthy witnesses of your Son, through whom redemption comes. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not forsake you. Go tell the story. Thank you.